my name is Robert Hagens. And I'm Kay Tuxford. And this is episode eight of Screenwriting from the Trenches, a podcast about the craft and expression of screenwriting in all its forms from the perspective of writers just like you. This week, we are discussing networking in a pandemic slash keeping the faith. But first, uh, as we always do, we're going to start with what was Twitter, uh, screenwriting Twitter fighting about this week? Yeah, I think this week we kind of had some more film Twitter discussions than screenwriting Twitter specifically. Um, I'm going to argue that the screenwriting Twitter to do um, was actually Craig Mazin tearing into Scott Myers over the beat. I don't know if you caught this interaction, but Scott Myers was trying to tell people he's a screenwriting guru. He's discussed format. He's analyzed a lot of um, films and, and trends. Uh, he, he does, does he do, remind me, go into the story? Yes, he does. Uh, and yes. he also does uh, ZD Draft, um, which I believe is going on right now. I could be wrong about that. But uh, two times a year, they do like a, like draft a screenplay in 30 days um, through the, seems like the, the right, story. It seems like the right month for it, for, considering NaNoWriMo is going on. Yeah. Uh, any, Anyway, so he made the declaration that beat can be really um, useless and waste a lot of space on the page when you could put more interesting information there. And Craig Mazin um, took umbrage. Uh, and as he does. To, as he does. Yes, he is a man of a lot of umbrage, I've noticed. Um, and Craig, we'd noticed from his, uh, his uh, podcast and group, um, Script Notes, right? The script notes. The uh, script notes. And I personally disagree with Scott Myers as well. Like I definitely, I mean, if you've ever read a like a Harold Pinter play, um, you know that sort of beats can be can have a lot of subtext um, on the page as well as you know sort of given to actors, and those sort of pregnant moments. Uh, give people a chance to think. So I'm gonna sort of side on the on the on the on the devil's side. Um, <laughs> well, I I'm on Scott Meyer's side here because he wasn't necessarily saying never do a beat. His argument was he had just he had just read a script that overused it, and his lamentation was that um, they could have put so much more helpful information in all of those beats instead of all those pregnant pauses. I think it's a, I think this is a kind of like a, your mileage may vary, like a, a few beats in uh, poignant moments could be really great. Uh, but I think it's kind of like um, new writers with the overuse of Riley or a parenthetical early on. Um, they can be very exhausting to read. Uh, and also like if there's not any subtext yet in the draft to, to really have and perceive, you're kind of just left for a beat wondering what it is they mean yeah and i i sort of get that and there's definitely an overuse uh of certain times where i've seen definitely seen scripts i've definitely done it myself where you sure. know i've uh used the word beat too much and usually that happens in a first draft yeah and then in the second uh draft and subsequent drafts um i'm actually putting more information um like he looks at her or you know something that that gives more of a, a, a description something that can uh that can be translated to screen um or to an actor's mindset um, yes so yes. 
there, you know, there are sort of ways to sort of circumvent things. But if you do want something where you just want to just like be caustic and just cut, you just like beat. Um, like I said, very much in sort of that uh, Pinteresque sort of uh, Sorkin-y kind of thing where you like, that was a sort of pregnant pauses. It's very much a play sort of thing. Yes, um, yes, it is. I, that's where I've encountered a lot more beats. Yeah. Um, so it can be useful and I definitely uh, think it has its place, but anything to sort of go back on the side of the devil, anything overused can be detrimental to your script. Um, like you said, parentheticals, a few can be helpful. Too many is too many. Obviously too many is too many. Um, or the we see, you know, I don't have a, a problem against we see, right. uh, but when you open every scene heading, you know, after every scene heading, I don't have an inherent problem with it, but usually when you start to see it, uh, it ends up getting overused. And then I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it's such a childish rhyming word. Like we see, we see, we see, it starts to right. um, lose all meaning. And so it's, yeah, it's definitely a quantity thing. Like you said, it's your mileage may vary, but there is there is a certain amount of information. Um, if you can find other things to put in the, in that sort of spot, um, because for me, I'm always looking for ways to sort of circumvent uh, the script format and sort of get and use the words to convey the, the picture that you're supposed to be seeing on screen, which is what a screenplay's job is. And mm -hmm. so those kind of things can take uh, folks out of that experience, but only if done sort of uh, inarticulately. Um, but if you can, if you're doing it and it flows, then it works. Yeah. Like it, like anything else, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's pop on to another topic on Twitter. Uh, this one you were really excited about. Um, yeah. One of our indie heroes, Jim Cummings, has his third film coming out called The Beta Test. And it is featuring a main character who is like an agent at a top agency in about 2019 when the um, packaging fights with war with the WGA was going on. Yeah, uh, which I remember very vividly. Again, a, a topic that was covered quite extensively on script notes. Um, yeah. But Jim Cummings is is just awesome. And there's a there's a line from the article that I want to read right now. The future is going to be a lot more like talented YouTubers making 90-minute pieces of content. That's what real democracy is. You can waste a huge amount of your life working for people who don't care about you. And I saw that and I just wanted to stand up and give that man a round of applause. Like that, that there's the truth. That's how I sort of feel all day, every day. And Jim Cummings just put it out there in black and white. Thank you, Jim Cummings. And I just, that's that's where I'm going to land on sort of the state of the industry because he's absolutely right. Uh, the point of this argument, uh, this article is that, that the gatekeepers are trying to hold up a system that no longer has a place. It is something akin to, like he says in the article, that show entourage. And that no longer is a place where we have to live as creators. 
We don't have to abide by these rules. We don't have to live in those, those spaces where they are run by these middlemen who are concerned with their tiny little fiefdoms. We do not have to adhere to their stupid rules. We do not have to deal with gatekeepers if you don't want to. And I love how um, sort of he goes through and explains how he has gotten around the system, how he explains that while you can do it, there are, there is going to be more work involved, but at the same time, it's worth it to not be a part of this system. Yeah. And I think anybody who wants to check out the article, it's on Indie Wire. And I think uh, they took a quote from him, which is your agent is a con man, which, you know, I'm like, Ooh, that's some fire. But, you know, part of the argument, it comes from his character as an agent in the in the movie who, you know, the packaging is uh, wars that occurred and I will argue is still occurring in its own way <clears throat> is a bit of a con because the person representing you isn't necessarily representing you, they're representing their interests and how much money they can get um, out of the package. So it is a con because you think this is your representation but really they're, they're in it for themselves and their company. Um, and that's a, that's a slightly you know, they're there. Then it brings up issues of is your rep going to give you the best deal? Uh, are they going to be looking out for you or are they looking out for themselves? Right. And, yes. And so uh, that's that's where that kind of gets in there. Um, I I agree with you. Um, I think that we are experiencing that change in how people are um, digesting media and what they need for media. Um, I'm actually attending a virtual AFM all week. The American film market, they don't have an in-person this year because of the pandemic, which we'll kind of cover a little bit in our main topic here. Um, and it's really interesting what the demand is. Number one, um, there are tons of great indie films, you know, being shown at this market right now. People looking for distributors, people looking to find their like way onto a streaming app and things like that. There's so many people who are kind of taking the 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 indie worlds, you know, and, and doing exactly what Jim is doing, which is just like, I'm going to put this together myself. I'm going to reach out and make these things happen. And, you know, if other people want to jump in and, and be a part of it, that's great. But there is a lot of momentum of like, I'm just going to make this, I'm going to will this into existence and you can do it, you know? And I think Jim is kind of our patron saint of that right now. And yeah. he sort of says so in the article where they're like, aren't you, wouldn't you make more money like doing it through like, you know, more traditional platforms? And he's basically saying like, I'm in this to tell stories. Like I yeah. want to be able to make money, obviously, but I'm not trying to like get rich. And that's the thing. I feel like a lot of people, like they get into this and they're like, I want to be rich. And like, you know, for me, uh, I'm very much like like in a sort of the same mindset but like the word for me is sustainability not mm -hmm. profit and i think that's what jim's sort of thing is too and i love him for that this whole thing of like when you start trying to play at that level where you're like trying to make millions of dollars that's where you have to run into these systems but if not you you know if you find yourself in a place where you can make something sustainable you get to do what jim does and jim's making really smart films uh, his own way and the trailer I should say for the beta test um, looks amazing and I'm definitely going to uh, check it out uh, yeah it, and I think LA peeps if you're in LA it's at the Alamo Draft House now I think this is opening weekend 
I want to get us through the last sort of updates on Twitter so we can keep going. Uh, more articles and more information is kind of coming out from Rust. Uh, we touched on this a couple of podcasts ago. I know it's kind of populating the social media. A lot of um, Facebook groups focus on crews and crew stories and IATSE. Um, you know, this is kind of a story that represents a lot of the issues with the industry right now. So we're getting a lot of updates on it. What's really happening right now, just to kind of keep everybody abreast of it, is it seems like individuals are lawyering up at this point and trying to make sure that they uh, are not to blame or responsible for that gun. It did come out that there was live um, ammunition in that gun. Mm -hmm. And that the box that was supposed to be a blanks included several live rounds. Yeah, uh, from what I understand, the box of live ammo, at least from what I saw, was uh, someone was, there were reports that the crew had gone out plinking, uh, which was shooting cans uh, with. Yes, yeah. so that was, that was tossed around, I think last week, they said that that may have been happening we don't have anybody confirmed to have been this person was out plinking at this time before before the shooting. Um, it seems extremely plausible at this point. It also yeah. seems it also see I think part of what's so horrific about it is um, this stuff seems to be on a cart that was not locked up or protected, and it would be very you know it it would be very easy for someone maybe they grabbed it and went plinking and then thought, okay, here's the bullets I didn't use and put them in the wrong box or something. You know, it would be very easy, I think, for somebody uh, to mix those things up. Um, right now, uh, the armor is trying to decry foul play that somebody purposely put those bullets live rounds in there. Um, but to me, uh, it just doesn't sound like it was a really safe situation. Somebody shouldn't even be able to, to do that. Uh, I think if we're going to talk about guns on set, nobody should be able to touch those bullets or put them in the wrong box other than the armor. I think on most sets that would be a, you shouldn't be messing or able to access that. Um, so I think a lot of people are kind of feeling like it's not a, it's not really enough of an excuse. Right. We're still kind of getting more information trickling out about it, but I think last time we talked about it, it was unclear if it was a actual live round or not other than a blank. It does appear it was a, a bullet. And um, so that is definitely uh, helping us understand the story, I think, a little bit more that th there was some severe neglect in this situation that something, you know, I think when blanks are loaded, if something happened with Brandon Lee, it was a, you know, a lot of it was with the intention of having loaded blanks, but it seems like this is a scenario where some like blanks, it wasn't that blanks were loaded into that gun or some of them were not blanks. Uh, so definitely, definitely interesting to see how this, um, uh, you know, unfolds here. It's interesting to see, you know, how when guns are being handled on set, really there's kind of a chain of command where each person needs to be shown that it is not loaded. Uh, and it looks like potentially some people left the gun out on the prop table, didn't check it or verify it after it would be, had been unintended. Um, and then, you know, each person along the way kind of seems like they took the, the previous person's word for it, um, which is, again, this is why we have these redundancies. Right. And everything sort of sounds plausible. And that seems like a yeah. the sort of timeline of events 
where a bunch of crew members took the guns and were playing cowboys with them plinking and then put the gun back. And then there was a series of gaps in accountability yes. because the AD himself uh, has been reprimanded for a lack of gun safety and lack of safety meetings uh, on other sets. And so this is a, a, a whole system of negligence uh, that starts from the top down in terms yeah. of uh, also sort of going towards the producers, hiring folks who were sort of problematic in the first place. The armorer was doing too many jobs. From what I understand, there was an article that came out that said that uh, they had previously wanted to work with another armorer, but he refused to do it because he wanted this uh, more people in order to maintain the system of redundancy yes. that one has. And then they hired uh, someone else. Yeah, they, it's like they just went down the chain until they got somebody to say yes. Right, until they got someone who would agree to do more work for less money. Um, and then- And less know, support. And There's less support. A, did you check out the um, article from Scorsese's daughter that I came out not. this week? Um, I, will, I will look it up um, so we can- included or I can promote it, but she actually is um, a prop master. She, she is, uh, when she, you know, watched her dad and everything go into film, um, she was interested in the props and the effects and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So she, um, she's been working on that and she's worked on his films for many years, but uh, other films and, um, you know, what she was commenting on was a lot about what you were just saying, which is that, even though I'm a trained professional, I've, you know, I did props on like The Departed and all these other like wonderful films uh, that uh, that the moment I say no and it's not safe, they just go get somebody else. And the attitude is that there's just someone in line. We'll just keep going down the line till we get somebody who does what we want for the price we want and for the mm, safety blinders that we want. Yeah. So this seems like sort of a systematic uh, failure all the way down from the producers down to the AD, down to the armors, whose job it was to make sure that their things were being used properly. Everyone seems to be, have been negligent um, to this point. And that how, that's how it ended up where an actor ended up with a gun with live ammo in it, uh, ended up pointing uh, that same gun full of live ammo, uh, or at least with a live bullet in it, at a, uh, you know, at the director of photography who then lost her life. And that is unacceptable. Whether or not, I don't think this is Alec Baldwin's fault personally, um, but there's definitely something to be said for being uh, the executive producer on a movie where that could foster this kind of non-accountability. Um, and that seems to be, you know, there are sort of arguments on both sides, people saying, oh, this doesn't happen on other sets. We don't, you know, this is, a, we, uh, That's we not are true. all about safety, right? We don't. That's not true. Because I, I, during the pandemic, I've worked as a COVID operating officer on a lot of sets. Um, I have a background in biology and I took, once COVID came out, I took a lot of um, classes for safety. And a COVID operating officer isn't even a medic. Basically, they're there just to make sure COVID protocols are instilled. Um, and so I took it pretty seriously. And um, I've trained my, my partner as well. She's, she also worked as a COVID operating officer. And um, we, when I've showed up on sets, I've had people sit there and go, oh, you're actually 
doing the job. I've been on sets where people just didn't care. Nobody's wearing masks. Nobody's sanitizing. I walk through like I have a UV wand and mask cleaners and uh, like hand sanitizers. I've, I like will find people walking without their mask going to craft services and stop them and be like, you're not going anywhere until you put that fucking mask on, right. you know, like, and, but you walk like people are like, oh, you're actually really being safe. And it, the fact that it was surprising means that on a standard, you know, on some of these indie sets, it's kind of, it's, it's lax and it's people were expecting to walk onto a set and it'd be lax. Well, I mean, that was the same thing that sort of set the internet on fire a few months ago where Tom Cruise like went off. It's not just like things, it's, it's film sets in general where Tom Cruise like went off on those two crew members because he didn't want to get shut down because when he gets shut down, you know, for COVID things, stuff like that, like you have to adhere to things. It's yeah. like safety is important. And if somebody takes it seriously, Tom Cruise clearly is a person who takes this, this crap very seriously. Yes. People wanted to get mad at him because he had yelled at these people and whether or not his, you know, the way that he handled it was the best. I under, I absolutely understand where that man was coming from because there's a man who's saying, no, no, we need to be doing our jobs. And a part of your job is to be wearing masks if you're going to be that close. Um, and, you know, just if people aren't, if people can't follow those, something that's as simple as wearing a mask because you are within six feet of another person, when these protocols are in place to keep us, keep you know, all of us safe, then, you know, it's not hard to imagine that you could get to a situation like rust and not to say that, you know, every, you know, set is dealing with these kind of people, but when you have. No, but you can. Yeah, but you can see where there's kind of like a wild west right. and people are following the rules. Some people don't feel the rules necessarily apply to them, you know, and it's kind of like a you don't know until you walk in the set what what they value. I will tell you, I think that's oftentimes why filmmakers end up working with the same group of people over and over because you end up, you know, I've had people go, oh, you're going to be on set. You're, you know, if we got Kay as the COVID operating officer, I'm there. And it's like, because right. people said like, oh, that's the sort of standard I want. You know, I know I'm going to be safe. There's an AD that I'm like, like Louisa, she's a director as well, but she's an amazing AD. Like she'll come in there and be like, let's talk safety. You know, you need this, this, and this, and this. And I know if like Louise is on set, if I'm walking on set, I already feel safer because I trust that person takes their job seriously. Um, but you don't necessarily know if you're a random hire from, uh, you know, a Mandy uh, posting or, a, um, you know, I, there's a lot of Facebook hiring groups and things like that. You don't know what you're going to walk into. Uh, so it is, it is unfortunately like a really uncertain environment. Anyway, uh, the other thing I wanted to say just before we finish the segment, in case anybody is wanting to look up what we were referring to, the article uh, about Kathy Scorsese was on the business on Business Insider, and it was called "I Work in Set Props and I Am the Daughter of Martin Scorsese." The way movies are now made is broken, uh, and that came out this week. Just in case anyone wants to check that out, and I will uh, link that in the show notes. Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, and I think we should link Jim Cummings' article too because oh, we absolutely uh, would link. It's Jim Cummings. fire and it's spicy. Anyway, why don't we? I don't know. Maybe we should talk about what we have been teasing people for for weeks. Yeah, let's talk and about networking and keeping the faith in a pandemic. Yeah. So um, I am. I'm going to lay out a problem for you. I think most of us are experiencing, which is that I see the Zoom screen and video chat screen after you know almost two years in a pandemic, 
And I feel repulsed. There's a part of me in my body that's like, I just don't want to do it. Um, I, I want to see a full person. I want to um, have an interaction where a person isn't like, as you, as you're seeing right now, isn't distracted by their cat. You know, I want to, I want to have like a human interaction. And so um, it's hard connecting with another person in, you know, pandemic kind of networking environment. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily zoom probably as much as you have, although I have done quite a bit of zoom interviews um, over the last a year or so. Um, but I have been listening to a lot of uh, podcasts where they've talked about virtual writers rooms where um, the sort of, it's much harder. And I was thinking about the idea of when you're in a room and you're able to sort of feed off of live energy from another human being, there's much more, I mean, even you and I, like I, when we met up earlier this year uh, and got pancakes, um, there was a sort of energy to it uh, that was much, uh, I think more lively than some, than our, our Zoom podcast. Like as much as I <laughs> love talking to you. Um, I think, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue is partly cause like that IHOP was, for some reason stuck in the eighties. And I think Ghostbusters was playing on the, on the. Which was amazing. Um, yeah. the, this was not during Halloween. This is like July. Yeah. And so there was no reason for it. And the fact that there was no reason for it was more reason for it. Uh, in, in that like, so yeah, I, there is it that. It was almost anachronistic. It was really, really weird. It was like a scene out of a movie. It was really, yeah. really great. Yeah. I think, I think it does make it more complete experience where you feel like you had an experience. Yeah. I don't necessarily know that I consider Zoom meetings to be an experience. Like I can definitely say that. That's not something that I necessarily consider to be an experience. I, I don't know why that is. Uh, maybe I'm a snob that way. I just don't consider that to be an experience, um, which is odd, but that is sort of where we are right now. Although the upside of which, the sort of flip side to that, is that because you can, everyone is now Zooming, um, now you do have certain access to people where if you were trying to get in-person meetings with folks, they were less inclined to say yes, but a lot yes. of people are more inclined to, you know, spend, you know, say, you know, spend like half an hour or an hour Zooming with someone rather than meeting someone for even 15 minutes. Yes. So there is that upside, there is that flip side to it. I was going to say there definitely is that sense where I've had a lot of people who I briefly meet and they're like, hey, can I just get on a Zoom with you for 30 minutes and ask you some questions or talk to you? Um, where it's like you're kind of scheduling like a mini coffee meetup or something where you're going to have a cup of coffee and they can ask you, you know, I get asked a lot of distribution questions lately uh, because Bindu is is on a streaming app and they're like, how how do I get there? And I'm like, you know, I'll, I can't necessarily do it in a group setting or, you know, do it in, sometimes an email, but uh, that is interesting that you can kind of like just zoom for 30 minutes, answer those questions and have an interaction. So that's definitely a positive. And then I don't have to go drive around and find parking at a bougie LA coffee shop. Right. Um, which, oh my gosh, Rob, like when, if you, if you come to LA, I will walk you through the bougiest of uh, coffee shops. 
where everybody's MacBook is open to a screenplay. You walk and you're like, this can't be reality, but it is. It'll be great. Sort of like one of those scenes where you see a bunch of monkeys like on typewriters, like that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, everyone's having like an $8 kombucha or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you also wrote down here the power of email. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to just kind of put that note out there that uh, I have been finding, especially during the pandemic, email has been one of my strongest ways to keep in touch and also meet a few other people. Um, Because the same thing that is a benefit with the Zoom is that a person doesn't necessarily have to be present uh, when you send out the email and they can take their time and think about your email um, or, you know, what it is, even if it's just a catch up, like, what have you been up to? Um, They can have a day or two until they're free and then say, oh, I've been doing X, Y, Z. I love having written word um, to kind of reference back, especially if it's somebody I only check in with every once in a while. So I can like, before I email them again, be like, hey, how was the project you were talking to me about last? You know, and uh, it's much easier for me to review what we've been talking about. Um, So I love that as well. And then also I've been finding uh, when sending queries and things like that uh, to meeting new people, email has been really, really handy versus FaceTime, which it sounds like querying for a script or something like that, you know, that, you know, email the manager, but I've been doing it to email right now, sales agents and distributors. And it's been not saying hard to get FaceTime at like AFM, but since it is digital, you know, everybody's kind of like screaming at various folk, uh, you know, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. Uh, but an email is nice because I've been getting a lot of responses and off hours where suddenly like they settle that uh, you can tell the person is like, calm down, had a beer or a coffee and check their emails. And then they can respond uh, when they're when they're a little more centered. And I've been finding that's been very helpful that that um, the, the emails just been really handy to be not so invasive, but also kind of just build that communication. Well, I'm going to sort of piggyback off of that. And I'm going to say if you're not necessarily doing something sort of a live event and stuff like that, but there are, if you're online, you're doing things and those algorithms are learning what you like and learning what you click on and you can make those things work for you. There are, uh, and you know, like if, for me, I get a lot of um, targeted ads for indie films. Um, which helps me because it, you know, sort of uh, allows me to stay on top of who's coming up in the indie film world and what filmmakers are making what. Um, But I can also use those things to my advantage. And several times I've gotten targeted ads where I have seen, oh, this is a thing that's coming out. And then I've gone to look up those filmmakers on Instagram or on Twitter, and I've been able to make a connection And other times I've been able to make not only connection, but someone who's been willing to give me a read. And in two notable cases where I not only got a read, but optioned. And so all of that was from a targeted ad that I used for my own benefit. And so a lot of these films, like these smaller films, um, not so much television shows, just because, you know, there seems to be a large amount of money behind most TV shows. There's not a lot of indie television, but in, especially in indie films. And also due to the fact that a lot of people who are in features are also working in television. Yeah. So you can use 
those ads, like find who these people are. If they're doing like, you know, if they're the first film is just coming out, definitely look them up. Trying to, you know, like get in, get into their mentions on Twitter or Instagram and in their comment sections. Follow them. See if you can get a follow back. If you get a follow back, then you're that you're gold. You're right there. Get the follow back. Once you've gotten the follow back, then you have a natural opening. Thank you for following me. What are you doing? And then you can do that. And not only that, but you can, or you can go and find those people. And then if they have a website, then email them. Their email is usually up on their website. And then just send them a nice email after you've watched their film, of course. Do not do this without watching their film. Don't just email people without doing the work. And be like, hey, I saw your uh, your movie on whatever platform uh, that, that it's at. Like, I, I rented your movie on iTunes. And most of those people will be glad to hear about the fact that somebody went out and spent five or six bucks to watch their film and then sent them a nice email talking about like a short, brief email, be complimentary. And there are tons of uh, articles that will tell you how to write a proper query email or a proper introduction in email. And you should Google those before you send any emails out to people because you want to be short to the point, but you also want to be purposeful. So do that, do the work, take, you'd be surprised what $7, six or $7 and, and two hours of your life can get you in terms of networking. Take that time, watch those films, watch the shows or whatever like that, or, uh, you know, and, and get in touch with these people. Um, to another uh, sort of sidebar to that imdb pro is good for helping with that um i think that's sort of a almost a necessary tool if you're networking out there um okay feel free to disagree with me yeah no no so i'm gonna i'm gonna put this out there i think imdb pro can be a blessing and a curse if you're looking up people on imdb pro and you don't necessarily you have like a, a form letter or something um it's very easy to kind of recognize that. I'm getting that now uh, because we're doing casting for delivery and it went into like a production weekly. I hired a part of my crowdfunding as I hired some casting directors. They were the same casting directors who helped us with Bindu. And I just, I love them. Um, and I'm not necessarily, that's not necessarily my skill set. And so I hired them. They, they've been doing casting for me and uh, they ended up putting my name and project in like production trades uh, for the week. And then people are going on IMDb Pro and just kind of like spamming me with resumes. Um, they don't know who I am and they don't seem to particularly care, um, which is fine. You know, obviously I'm not really looking at these messages. I'm just like, okay, I know you're just trying to get work, uh, you know, respect. But, you know, there's there's been very few people who are like, even commented on like what the queer, like the log line was that was posted with it right. or know that I've made other films. And so um, the people who actually took a second to like look into who I was, I responded to. Uh, and the people who uh, just kind of seemed like they were spamming me and it didn't really matter. Um, I was like, oh, they're probably not as, they're not really interested in this project. And this is like an indie project. So I'm like, you know, there is money and, you know, people will get paid and all those sort of things. But um, with the indie world, part of how you get a really great team 
is that the people are actually excited to be there and work specifically on this. So I don't, you know, it's not like, you know, working that like dead end job where people are like, well, why do you want to be at work at McDonald's? And you're like, you're, you know, all of us are thinking that because I don't want to be homeless. I want to pay rent, you know, but you're (laughs) supposed to, you're supposed to say something along the lines of, you know, because I love helping people get fries. You know, you're supposed to say something like that. Sidebar, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I hate that. You know, you do you do those job interviews with things when you have day jobs and they're just like, why do you want to work here? And you're like, because I have rent to pay. And I came here for the money, dude. Like this is America. Where are you living? I hate that question. And it comes terrible question. Every interview that you do for a day job. Why would you want to work here? Because bills need paid, sir. And this world doesn't run on free on goodwill. Like, <laughs> it doesn't. But but I'm going to argue the indie film world is different. Where somebody's soliciting you about your project, you kind of want to know why they want to be on your project versus anything else. Like if they're like, I just want to pay my bills. I also know that tomorrow, you know, when they get picked up for a bigger gig, they're gone. You know, they're not they're not invested, which is fine. Good for them. Go do the bigger gig. But um, it definitely doesn't help me start rapport because I'm like, okay, you don't really care. Um, And this isn't necessarily the type of business where, again, it's like, oh, nobody's, we don't really expect you to care. It's McDonald's. Um, I need, I need you, like, if you want to be a part of the team, I need to like, feel like, okay, you're going to be here. Um, That's, that's more worth it for me. Uh, And again, if, if I hire somebody and they're like, I just need to pay rent, I get it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold it against them, but I also know that they, you know, they might move on to something else. Right. But the point of the matter is that if if you're going to be engaging with people uh, in a way that you want a response, um, you have to do the work. Yes. Please, please, please. And there's so many people out there that just don't do that little bit of work. And I'm not saying that you have to go around and spend, I know money is thin and even $7 may be a lot, but if you want to contact a person, like it is worth it to spend a little bit of money to invest in a relationship. And you'd be surprised sometimes where they're going. I literally got my first option because I spent, I had a, a person whose film was on Netflix. I watched their film. I sent them uh, a a DM on Twitter, like that was very complimentary about their film. Uh, it was a short, sweet to the point. They commented back. I commented back. And I just sort of nurtured that relationship until they were like, well, I'm going, my movie is being shown at uh, this theater in New York. And if you don't mind, you know, uh, you could come up to the premiere. We'll get you on the list. And I was like, well, I can't make it out to that, but I bought a ticket anyway to the event online. And I just showed them the receipt that I had paid $7 for a ticket. And that person was like, you know what? That's cool. Do you have anything that you're working on? And then I ended up, I did have something to work on because you should always have something that you're working on. And I sent it to that person. That person loved the thing that I sent. And then I got my first option. That was how that worked because of a small thing that I did and a relationship that I nurtured and I waited until they asked me for something and like I said it was seven dollars where it was just that small it's that tiny bit of kindness that got me noticed and got me uh, working on something and got me valuable experience and that's that's sometimes that's all it takes 
is to just be kind and to just, you know, that's sort of, you know, where you need to be. And this, you can't just spam people. People, like you said, people will see through someone who hasn't taken the time to figure out who they're emailing in terms of, you know, just sending some sort of, you know, if you wouldn't like a form letter sent to you, don't send a form letter to somebody else. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Or bare minimum, you know, customize it a little bit. You right. know, uh, I know there are certain things when I have to send out a form letter, there's some things like the pitch for my project or who I am. That doesn't change too much when I have to introduce myself, but I should talk about who they are and why I'm actually messaging them. Right. Um, you know, I just message a, a small distributor who does LGBT films. My delivery is LGBT. And, you know, the first thing I said was, you know, there aren't many of us out there, you know, that specialize in LGBT films. Like I want to be your friend, right. <laughs> you know, because, you know, we have a common interest. I'm excited about your slate. I'm excited about these things. And so when the person opened the email, they're like, oh, she knows what we do. Um, oh, she's, She's looked at my slate. They, they see what the type of movies we make. Um, oh, she makes similar things. So she wants to. And the other thing is I didn't make any demands. I was like, hey, can I keep you abreast of the project I'm working on? It's right. early, you know, but like you, you're the type of people I would love to hang with. They responded back this morning. I emailed them yesterday. They responded back this morning and they're like, we don't really work on projects usually that early. But I started floating around what I'm looking for for our distributor is a statement of interest you know, somebody who says, hey, we like what she's doing. And if she finishes it, we'll probably distribute it. And they were like, you know what? You send us your materials. We might be willing to do a statement of interest for a distributor. Why? Because I said, you know, that's what I'm doing. So early, you know, messaging people. Right. It was it, one of the things I want to say is when you contact people, try to think of what your ask is. Uh, like for you, obviously some of this networking with people is, hey, I want to get read. That's a fine thing to ask. Um, or, you know, for me, when I'm messaging these people, I'm like, hey, I'm really looking for, you know, somebody who's maybe not invested in this project money-wise, but is going to be invested to say like, oh, I support it. Uh, so a statement of interest is great. Try to think of what, at the end of the day, what you're asking for and try to make it reasonable. Asking for a script read or somebody to like give you feedback on a project isn't unreasonable, especially if you do something like offer to read their script first or, you know, see their movie, you know, you probably want to be the person giving before you ask for something. Um, or what you want to ask is something that isn't going to take them too much time or energy. Like a statement of interest is like literally a document. Um, so, and it, it doesn't require um, any, like, it's not a legally binding agreement. It says, hey, when she's done with it, we'll look at it. Right. And so if you're asking for something that doesn't really take them too much time uh, to commit to, they're more likely to say yes. What a lot of people end up getting messages like, here, read my script, be my representation, get me financing, get these actors attached, do all these things for me. And it's a huge list of things you're asking for. Right. Uh, and the person on the other end, probably, you know, since movie making is such a, uh, it takes so many people along the line to get all those things. Uh, they can't do all those things for you anyway. So immediately they just kind of shut down because they're like, I can't, I can't get you those things. Not to mention the fact that they don't know you and it's kind of impolitic yes. to just ask for a, like a, like a laundry list of crap, just yes. right out of the box, man. Like, don't come on, man. Like, and I've gotten those emails too, where people have seen the channel and stuff like that. Be like, Hey, can you read my script and watch my films and do these things? And I'm just like, 
and, and give me feedback. And I'm like, dude, like pick one, like, yes, you know, like one thing, focus one. on that. I want to pivot to uh, keeping the faith. Yes. Uh, um, because there is sort of, you know, I, while you are out here and we're all hustling, um, you know, there are, so it, it can be hard, especially, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially with all of us being so much vocal, uh, so much more vocal on these sort of online platforms and social media about uh, our successes and failures, especially around screenwriting contest time where it just like, you know, it's Nickel and Austin and, you know, uh, like all of these different screenwriting contests uh, Coverfly and all these different things um, where it can be hard to sort of, you know, if you're not quarterfinaling in X, Y, and Z contest and you're just kind of submitting to a lot of different things um, and not seeming to get anywhere, it can be hard to go on uh, social media platforms and see people getting repped, people getting bought, people getting uh, read, and people getting... Uh, making connections with folks that you want to be connected with, um, people getting mentioned by folks that you like to be yeah. even introduced to. Um, <laughs> like, you know, that sort of thing can be very uh, daunting and can be feel discouraging. And so uh, I just want to sort of bring up a few tips and tricks in order to sort of safeguard your mental health, your insanity. Uh, I, I don't think, so, uh, first of which I'd like to sort of put it out there, nobody sort of uh, sort of does this better than Meg LaFove and Loria McKenna on the Screenwriting Life podcast. I hate to, well, you know, not to put up another uh, podcast about screenwriting over our own, but if you're looking for sort of like a like a mental health hug every week in terms of uh, screenwriting. There isn't one better than that one. Uh, those two women uh, and their producer, Jeff, uh, are really, really great about uh, their whole model uh, and brand is sort of you are not alone in terms of screenwriting. And they very much lean into that. That is their their brand. Um, but otherwise, there, uh, you know, Kate Tufsford, you have uh, some things here uh, in terms of that. Yes, um, I'm in agreement with you regarding keeping the faith and feeling all that um, energy. As far as as far as um, what I do is usually my keeping the faith is it really helps sometimes for me is to um, try to keep your successes and the things that make you happy about being a writer around you. Um, I, as you can tell, I have the board, which makes me really happy because there's a full story on it. So every mm -hmm. time I'm like, I don't know if I come up with stories, I have something on it. And the other thing you probably can't see is there's a poster of the first TV show I got optioned um, over here as well. And I, I don't mean nobody goes into my room but me, but every day I walk in and I see stuff that I was excited about and what made me happy as a writer. And so keep, in, keep around some things that kind of give you your warm feelings of what you're doing here. And then the other thing is, is I wouldn't get too bogged down by contest wins and things like that, that you see online. Um, I think oftentimes what we have as writers is we spend a lot of time shouting out our successes into the Twitter and social media void. Um, and so just all it feels like is people are winning all around us. Um, and sometimes I think for us, it, it creates that 
and social media does this on a whole, but it creates that insecurity that somehow you're failing. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, just be mindful. Everyone's just putting their successes on there because they also feel that way. And the other thing is that um, you have to remember that everybody is just one bit of good news away from, I mean, you're one bit of good news away uh, from making your own uh, post or your own success. It's really uh, not something that you have. I mean, just have that confidence that, you know, those things are going to happen for you. Um, Is that touching a little bit on what you wanted, Rob? Yeah, um, I just sort of want to piggyback on that. I feel like sort of adjacent to that is when, in order to do this screenwriting um, as a vocation, as a as a job, I really feel like you sort of have to have horse blinders on and yeah. sort of uh, quote Donald Glover, uh, your, your work has to be your playtime. Uh, if, mm. you're, if you're going to do this, um, it's gotta, you've got to love it. And for me, like I, like a friend of mine, this literally happened this week. A friend of mine was like, it was six o'clock in the morning and I had just finished uh, editing uh, our last podcast with Jordan. And I had also just uh, been writing and working on projects basically after after I had gotten home from work. So I got home from work around 3 a.m., worked three more hours before I went to bed. Mm. And a friend of mine, as I was sort of drifting off, was just like, I'm worried about you burning out. And for me, I'm like burning out on 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 what? Like that's you know, that three hours was the best part of my day. Like that for me is what I get up for the rest of the stuff that I'm doing is just sort of propping that up like I have to go to my day job in order to pay my bills so that I can work afterwards and and have those three hours exactly like that's where I'm at so you know if you I know that writing can be hard and I know that it can be very daunting and when you're not writing it gets even worse because then you feel guilty about not writing And that sort of has its own little shame spiral that you can get into, but you have to enjoy the work. If you don't enjoy the work, and some people have, there's that old saying that I don't enjoy writing, I enjoy having written. I'm completely on the other side of that. I enjoy writing and have written. Like I, I, I am on both sides of the fence. Um, I like Ah. the craft of writing. You know, I, I liked having gotten pages. Um, I like figuring things out. It's one of the reasons why I write inside and not outside in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to keep fighting, going with fighting it. Words. I'm going to keep going. So, um, but anyway, like that's where I'm at. And that's why I do my work is my playtime. Like, well, I, I think I think there are people and I've encountered a lot of other writers who, number one, bless you. That's fantastic. There are days where I sit down and I don't want to write. I'm always happy after I sat down and have written and I'm like, it's like going to the gym. You don't want to go sometimes um, or at all sometimes, uh, especially if it's in the morning. I don't understand early morning gym people. I'm like, do it at 3 a.m. when (laughs) this, you know, that's when I feel like the gym is appropriate for me and not at, not at uh, seven in the morning. Um, Anyway, so, so what I was going to just touch on there is there is something where at the end of the day, 
it sometimes can be hard when you're working on a deadline or you're working on your pages to kind of have that, you know, look into the horizon and that idea of where you're going to go. And I think it's the same thing that we kind of talked about in networking is try to give yourself your one ask. What are you trying to do with this task? Right. Um, are you trying to finish your pages? Okay, just focus on finishing your pages. Are you trying to edit it and make sure you get everything in there? Okay, well, that's, you know, you're already asking for more things than you can really do in sometimes in one task. I think a lot of times we get daunted and afraid and have blocks because we're asking for ourselves too many things at once. It's the same sort of thing um, where really if you stop and do one thing, say, hey, I'm going to finish my deadline and my pages, um, then you can go back and ask yourself for the next thing, which is like, oh, I'm going to edit these pages. Oh, I'm going to, you know, workshop it. Um, and if you put all those kind of tasks in a row, you'll get it done. But it's too often, I think we we go to a project and we're like, just be good and amazing and everything. Cause I really like no pressure, but I really need this to win me uh, an Oscar or put me on the blacklist. And suddenly you, you ask so many things of your project. Um, you feel very overwhelmed. And I think if we practice probably sometimes smaller asks of ourselves, um, we'll probably find it's more satisfying kind of like what you're saying here. Um, but I've been a victim of, trying to do everything at once and trying to put all this on myself at once. And also, especially when you're writing an assignment for somebody, you're thinking about not just how to finish the pages, but will somebody like these pages? And suddenly it feels like you're juggling a little bit too much in your mind. Um, and now I have found it's better for me to go, okay, what do I want to do? Finish that task. Then, okay, how would someone else feel about this? Finish that task. Um, and I think, I think it's just about that is it's, um, and then celebrate each time you finish a part of that. Um, too often, I think we, we, as writers look and say, well, I don't know about you, but you go home for the holidays or see your family or you meet somebody and they're like, you're a filmmaker. Have I seen your movies, you know, at mm -hmm. AMC or, or film? And you're like, well, that's not where all movies exist. Um, also that's like, if somebody finishes all their tasks and then some, sometimes, you know, they get to have that feature film, you know, distributed in the theater or whatever, but, uh, it doesn't make you any less of a writer. If you haven't gotten to that person's idea of completion, they're not writers. They don't even know what they're really asking. Right. <laughs> and, and they're trying to be supportive in their own way, but we don't, you know, the parts of the business and the industry. Sometimes they're trying to be supportive. You know, there are a lot of yeah. people who like, you know, you get and they're smaller folks and they get upset that when you, you know, have dared to, you know, deem to call yourself a writer, a director, a filmmaker, a artist, uh, you know, and, they, you know, they work a day job and they just want to know, like, have you reached my standards? And your those standards may not work. Uh, do not work necessarily because most of those not for creative industries, right? Not in this yeah. uh, sort of day and age. And the other thing I, I'm going to sort of not disagree, but sort of um, I understand. I definitely understand like task based um, sort of workflow. But I also sort of advise working on multiple projects. Like I, sure. I recently uh, had to shut down my unicorn script. Um, and because it was, it just was not working. I got to the end of the first act and I was just like, well, you know what? I don't feel like I, I've, I've really cracked 
where this is going or I was writing scenes or the scenes that I was going to write, I knew that I wasn't excited about them yet. And rather than write the bad version of them, which is sort of not my, you know, modus operandi, like I can't do it. I can't, I can't do that. Um, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to come back to this when I have scenes that I am excited about. And so I sort of moved on to another project. And I feel like, you know, I've also heard this advice from Jordan Peele. Um, you know, if you get to a place where you get stuck on one, you can work on other things, or I believe that it is helpful to have multiple projects that you can work on to sort of pivot to. And sure. that not might not work for everybody. My ADD brain sort of just <laughs> like can, can sort of handle that. Um, you know, and I just immediately shifted my focus to the, another project. And that worked really well because then I had a breakthrough on that script and then it broke something open. And then I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to get to the end of this one. And then that I will use that in going back to my unicorn script where like having the success of having uh, made that, written that script and gotten to the end of that, um, you know, that, I will do that. And for me, I've done that multiple times. It took me years to get through Wagner's Roost like that. Um, I started that script, I think, five years ago. And I just kept putting it down. I would get a few pages in, put it down, get a few pages in, put it down. But then this year, I had so many successes with how many screenplays that I had written that I finally was able to like, okay, I'm ready for this. I'm finally going to get there. And then... Yeah, I had a similar experience. Keep going. And so, you know, just having those successes stacked up as I got to the end of this and I was happy with the result, or at least it came out to a result that I was proud to go into the next draft, like, because I was able to do that, then I was able to go and, and, and get to Wagner's Roost and then finally get to the end of that script. Uh, something, like I said, that had taken me five years to get there. And it just was a matter, uh, like a, you know, a matter of, of pivoting around and just finally deciding, well, you know, now I'm, I've, I've got these things. And now I feel like having had those experiences, I now have scenes to write that I feel that will be exciting. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I had, a, I had a similar project like that. It took about five years or so. I think I finished as much as I could finish in 2016 uh, and I put it to bed, uh, and part of it, it was really missing act three, and it was about, uh, it was the betwixt and betweens, which I know you've read, Rob. Yeah, and I uh, love, uh, it's one of my favorite scripts of yours. I know, well, see, uh, this is, this project, this script is a poster child for exactly what you're saying, which was, it was all about, uh, it was a little bit too close to home for me, uh, but it's about a couple who is, they're like a polyamorous triad, they're young kids in college living together in an apartment, you know, everything is very like French film, uh, you know, we love what we love and we live here and it's our own world sort of thing, and then one of them gets pregnant, and, uh, you know, it's really about the real world crashing into the apartment and facing, <clears throat> you know, some very traditional parents and, and, you know, finding out where they kind of fit into the world. And, you know, it was a, it was a question I was asking because I'm uh, Polly myself and I was uh, living with my partners. So this was really about, uh, you know, being in a, a triad, having, having children or the idea of children looming and what does that mean, which was something I'm go I was going through. Uh, and I didn't really have the answer for it. And then last year I pulled the script up, not even last year, this year, right before Nickel, 
I pulled the script up and I said, what made me stop on this project? And I realized I had the ending. Uh, and I probably had had the ending for a couple of months now that like my kids had gotten old enough. And uh, suddenly I finished it. I finished it. I think it, it took me five, five years, much like you. And I finished it in, in two days uh, and submitted it to Nickel. And it, I think it placed in the top 10%. And second round at Austin this year. And that was just a script that I hadn't been, I hadn't touched um, in forever. And then I gave it to Rob and Rob was like, I'm a fan. So yeah. see, I, I got the triumvirate. I got, I got some, some okay accolades and then I got a fanboy out of it. So that's, that's sometimes what happens when you put a project in a drawer. Right. Um, and in terms of self-care, like talking to friends is one of the things that you should be doing. Um, yes. You know, having a network of people that you can talk to. Um, and also, I feel like doing non-work in progress related writing, like journaling or just sort of creative writing, like I do a lot of short stories, um, the sort of on the side where I'm just like, you know what, I just want to write on Hero today. That way, if you don't feel like, you know, your characters are speaking to you. Sometimes you have to go over and, and, and you know, uh, yes. satiate another beast. And, yeah. And, you know, and like you said earlier, setting up a system of rewards is also uh, a really, really cool way to sort of reward yourself um, for making goals and uh, getting pages and things like that. Um, but I really want to, I, I sort of really, uh, do like non-work in progress related writing. Yeah. I, I find, I don't really do too much, um, non-screenwriting writing, uh, but I do have a few, what I call like side projects. Like when my brain is feeling like it just wants to do something insane or unrelated. I have some like comedies or shorts I like to work on as well. Uh, I'm making, Julie and I are working on a mockumentary right now, which is just a couple of scenes investigating, um, a girlfriend who finds out that her boyfriend wants to have anal sex for the first time and she's traumatized and so she decides to become a documentary filmmaker and search for the quest uh the search for a heterosexual male's quest for butthole so it's so nice to kind of like um jump back and forth and kind of like get your brain like free up your brain a little bit but uh one sort of uh, in terms of uh, what we are consuming, writing, yes. uh, let's uh, hit that up. Uh, you, uh, let's start off with oh, yeah. writing and uh, watching. Yes, yeah, so, oh. so in honor of Halloween last weekend, um, I'm a bit of a wuss. I think I probably said that during my uh, podcast with um, our last podcast, our Halloween one. Uh, scary movies are really scary for me. Um, and, you know, like I saw Hereditary and I uh, saw that severed head for like it's still like I close my eyes and I can still see it um so I'm very impressionable and so I wanted to watch a horror movie uh but I do a little better with horror comedy uh and so my my watch this week was a zombie horror comedy on Hulu it's a series called Zom Boat uh Zom Boat is kind of Sean Sean of the Dead-esque but a series about two girls who decide to avoid the zombie apocalypse by taking the slowest moving long boat in a canal from their little city to London uh, to avoid the zombies. But the boat is so slow, the zombies are just kind of following them on the sidelines. Uh, and, and, you know, they can't do anything very quickly, but the zombies don't seem to go into the water. So they're like, we're kind of safe, but like, you just keep watching the zombies shuffle after them. It's That's hilarious. Funny. Yes. Uh, so that, and, uh, I think that's what I put down as what I watched this week. 
Yep. Is that, okay, that's it. Then it's you. Oh, I'm also watching casting videos. So uh, I would have watched more TV, but we're getting casting videos in for delivery. So I'm having to watch a bunch of those um, and, and make notes. And um, there's lots of really talented people. So thank you, everybody who's been sending in great videos. And uh, yeah, I've been watching them. And I, I watch usually the same casting video a few times just to make sure uh, I'm in different head spaces and different perspectives every time to kind of view the performance. Right on. I am watching, uh, <clears throat> I, I'm, like I said, I had to shut down my unicorn script. Mm. Um, speaking of self-care, uh, because it just wasn't doing it. Um, I left some yeah. sort of breadcrumbs to sort of go back to the second act or when I get back to it. Um, but I started working on my, uh, my, next feature which is going to be the focus of how to uh make a movie for a thousand dollars season two um and sort of in keeping with that i watched a bunch of witty romantic comedies i watched mm. your sister's sister like four times um, <laughs> like twice with the director's commentary and i also watched what if um with daniel radcliffe and zoe kazan which I is an underrated little rom-com uh, that doesn't really come up a lot. I think Zoe Kazan was sort of like an actress who's sort of made for rom-coms and I don't know why she doesn't get cast more. Um, and like sort of like, she's just uh, like amazing for that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know why she doesn't, why her name doesn't come up more. Um, I also started watching Love and Other Drugs, but what I'm really waiting for is Timer. Uh, to come in on DVD from Netflix by written and directed by uh, WandaVision showrunner Jack Schaefer. It was her first movie. Um, Is that I, the sci-fi movie where people have the timer about when they're going to fall in love? Yeah. I, I've me, seen it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For me, there aren't a lot of movies, it seems like, like for as prevalent as sort of, I don't know, maybe I'm missing them, but, you know, there's sort of love guaranteed on Netflix, um, you know, which is about, you know, uh, Damon Wayans Jr., like he went on an, an app and couldn't get a date. I mean, not that he couldn't get a date, but he couldn't find love no matter how many dates he went on. Um, but I feel like there isn't like sort of, the dependence of electronic media on the dating world right now is super prevalent. And I feel like people have not, no one sort of nailed that. Mm. Um, and I think Timer is one of those movies that sort of gets it right where, you know, you sort of have this technology um, thing. The other thing that would is sort of uh, really great for that is Upload. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that show. Yeah, upload on Amazon Prime. Um, and I may do a rewatch of that show. I was a really big fan of the first season, and I'll definitely probably rewatch that. Um, sort of getting in that space of uh, the how, yeah, our digital lives. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah, well, not so not just no, digital no, but, lives, but like digital love lives and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, digital love lives and digital, like, like. I meant lives, not like they're dead and yeah. uploaded, but like that covers, upload covers people who are, are alive and people who are digitalized. And, you know, it definitely kind of covers the, the confusing spectrum in between, you know, what, what counts, what doesn't count. That's what I think, I think there's this sort of like, uh, 
expectation that if you're talking about things that have happened within the realms of a digital environment like chatting that they can sort of be uncinematic and so I'm sort of making mm -hmm. a film to prove that that is the farthest thing from the case what you're saying is that you are unimaginative um because I was gonna say what's more dramatic than the three dot ellipses in a text right oh my god I see that and I go <gasps> Um, and then the worst thing is like when you see it and then it goes away, like somebody was doing something. Oh my God, that's the most. Um, so yeah, anyway, like I, that's sort of where I am uh, with my script because I, I really want to explore that sort of facet. I think that's always been sort of an, an extra round, which is something that I, I think that was helping me this week, which is something that I had in this script, um, which I did not have in my unicorn script, which is an engine. Um, there is there is an axe to grind, there is something driving the story forward uh, that comes from something that I am interested in personally, and that sort of informs my scenes and what I want to do and what I want to say. Um, and so, you know, there you go, and that's why this script is working, and thank God for that. Um, so, Kay? Uh, yeah, what, what, am I, what am I working on? Uh, first of all, I said last week, I think I was editing a trailer for a, a friend. And I'm really excited because the reason why the trailer is being edited is his film was getting picked up for distribution. So I wanted to give a shout out to Adrian Martinez for his directing um, premiere, uh, directing debut, sorry, uh, for I, Gilbert, a feature film picked up by Gravitas Ventures. Um, and it's starring himself and Dasha Blanco. So I just want to say congrats to everyone on Team I Gilbert. Uh, and I'm really happy that I got to help them with the trailer. And then what I'm doing writing-wise is uh, my OWL script is still coming along. I've only been doing about uh, 10 to 15 pages a week. Um, and I, I've missed some weeks because of other projects. But uh, the whole inspiration I had for this project was this really awful not awful, but horrific scene um, that takes place at a rave where um, these people are doing drugs and somebody starts seeing these owl women attacking people and they are so out of favor with their group of friends that everyone just assumes they're having a bad trip and tie her up while this is happening. So um, I got to write that part and kind of watches this person who actually can see what's going on is basically powerless. And um, it was really, really exciting to write because it was something I had been seeing, um, you know, before I even started this project. And so uh, it turned out even a little more horrific than I thought it would be compared with like the scene above it. But um, it makes me so happy that it, it made it into this draft. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm still working. I have more pages to do this week, but I was really excited to get that out. Well, that brings us to our resource of the week. Uh, and I decided to just go simple on this one. And this week's free resource or resource is Twitter because besides Instagram, there's no greater free resource available to you online than the Bird Network. Screenwriting Twitter is there. And so our access to gurus, agents, managers, showrunners, feature writers, TV writers, writers in general, where following and clicking on the right hashtag can help you find collaborators, employment, and all things in between. Um, Kate, do you agree with that statement? 
Yeah, heck yeah. I think I think it's uh, screenwriting Twitter is very alive and well, so it's a great support network. Additionally, it's a really great place to learn about other people who are hustling their projects. Um, and also I found personally on screenwriting Twitter that it's very easy to find somebody to swap scripts with um, and to, to get some reads and find out if your work is working um, and also build some of those connections. So screenwriting Twitter and Twitter in general for the win. All right. And that's our show. Uh, next week, we'll have another interview, this one together uh, with Jamie Nash, author of Saves the Cat for TV. See, uh, screenwriting from the Trenches can currently be found on Anchor, Apple, Google, and Spotify podcasts, as well as KevinLMartin.com. And since we are a new podcast, we'd appreciate if you dropped us a like or rated us five stars on whatever platform you patronize. Because why, Kate Tuxford? Algorithms. For questions for us that we can and will answer on the show, my email is rob at bespectablemofo.com. You can also find uh, me on uh, Twitter at bespectablemofo. That's the at sign B, then spectacledmofo is missing the first letter E after the initial B. K is? I am at K underscore Tux on Twitter. Um, and go on, Rob. And these things, as well as my YouTube channel, where I have a digital series, How to Make a Movie for $1,000, will all be linked in the show notes, as well as the articles that we talked about earlier, and also the trailer for the beta test. Everyone go out and support Jim Cummings, please, please. Uh, so thanks so much for listening. We hope that you will continue to do so. Now, stop procrastinating. Uh, those pages aren't going to write themselves. Damn right. All right, Kate Tuxford, thanks for another good one. Thank you. Thank you, Rob.